This is Father Gregory Pine. And this is Father Patrick Briscoe. And welcome to God's Planning. Thanks to all those who support us. If you enjoy the show, please consider making a monthly donation on Patreon. Be sure to like and subscribe to God's Planning wherever you listen to your podcasts. Father Patrick, here we are. Uh, these are the days of our lives. Mm. As someone said, I think in the context of a soap opera, um, days of our life. Was that true? My mom used to watch soap operas while ironing shirts in the family room. Your thoughts on ironing shirts and soap operas? Nice. Well, I always tried to get someone else to watch the soap operas and iron the shirts before me. Wow, I'm going to say words. I always tried to get someone else to watch the soap operas yep. and iron the shirts for me so that I didn't have to do either of those things. <laughs> There's a great line, though, that is soap opera-esque yep. in the final season of The Office uh-huh. where Andy Bernard says, they don't tell you you're in the good times when the good times are happening. Nice. It's a paraphrase. That's not the exact. Yeah, yeah. But if only someone told you that these were the days, that these were the good times, right? Yeah. That's the point of the moment. Yeah. And so these are the days of our lives. And uh, as Father Bonaventure likes to remind us, Michel Foucault, I think, says that there are no good times or bad times. There's just dangerous times. Nice. That's an especially you know terrifying phrase from an especially terrifying man who is like the principal inheritor of the Nietzschean tradition. So if you're into nihilism, that's true. I also quote that as if it were true, because I think it might be true in certain ways. I'm talking a thousand miles a minute. But regardless, maybe by way of contrast to perilous times, we can think about these as providential times. These are the times for which we were made. Uh, and so they're the best possible times for us within that limited understanding. I don't know if that characterizes, well, Father Gregory, Discipline your speech, because we have a topic to talk about, and it's not the one that you're currently engaged in. Oh, I have a pivot. No, here we go. These <laughs> these dangerous times, which is something like a chainsaw, you know, taking us down, carving us, sculpting us. But these dangerous times are no more or less dangerous than the times of the past. And if there's one thing that we love about Roman Catholicism, it is reliving the past. Yes. And what, what happens in the past? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There that was go. great. And in the past there were saints, right? And those saints left behind any number of things, right? So our Lord didn't leave behind his body on account of the fact that he ascended to heaven. Blessed Mother also didn't leave behind her body on account of the fact that she was assumed into heaven, which are different things, which we'll talk about in another episode, or maybe not, regardless. False promises? Father Gregory, come on. Um, But many saints, when they die, their mortal remains remain behind, and then the things that they touch or things that were touched to them also left behind. And in light of this fact, we have a cult of saints and a kind of veneration that is um, shown to or exhibited towards relics. Uh, Before getting into like why or how weird, um, which are different considerations, maybe, maybe just a little bit of our experience with relics, because both of us are motivated by the veneration of relics in our peculiar, particular, and decidedly American ways. So Favorite relics, favorite relic stories, favorite relic pilgrimages? Definitely so. One of my favorite relics is the incorrupt heart of St. John Marie Vianney. Why do I love that so much? Well, it's such a great relic because St. John Marie Vianney is the only parish priest to be a saint just for having lived a saintly life as a parish priest. Other parish priests were martyrs and so on and so forth, etc. The sort of thing that Father Gregory says. (laughs) It's a phrase. Thus and such, yada, yada. (laughs) X, Y, Z. But, but... It's so remarkable because if he was renowned for this holiness as a parish priest, to think that one of the most precious relics we have of him is his heart Mm. is really an amazing thing. So when you visit ours, which, by the way, is in the middle of absolutely nowhere. I thought, oh, charming French village in the the south of France. 
Uh, you really you really have to haul it to get out there. <laughs> Trains, buses, hours, yeah, countryside, you know, bicycles. And, and it just it get, the whole adventure going out to that place gives you a sense of what it was like for his striving for holiness there. It was not exciting. No. Uh, but anyway, there at ours, they have a special chapel where his heart is venerated. And it amplifies, I think, this great symbolism of the heart of a priest, the one who loved much, right? That his heart would be preserved in that way, yeah. um, that it would be kept and corrupt, and that it would be available for, for private prayer for pilgrims in a place set aside in the shrine is truly remarkable. Yeah, and I think, too, of the St. John Vianney quote, something to the effect of, like, priesthood is love of the heart of Jesus. Mm-hmm. So if you think about, like, cor ad cor locutor, heart speaks to heart. Um, the incorrupt heart of St. John Vianney is patterned after the sacred heart of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it becomes like a kind of icon of the Lord's love for us, the love of the priest for his people, which is beautiful. Um, speaking of the south of France, I recently went on a little bit of a relic pilgrimage. Mm-hmm. Um, so as Dominicans were suckers, not like Nelly is, for cornrows and manicured toes, uh, you didn't see that song coming your way, <laughs> no, did you? Let's go. Nice um, reference. Thank you. Uh, we're suckers for St. Mary Magdalene, whose feast we celebrate on July 22nd and is embraced as one of the patronesses of the Dominican order because of a variety of reasons, which you describe very beautifully in an Alatea article, um, which you know viewers or listeners can uh, look back for in the month of July. Uh, but one of is that she's the apostle to the apostles, so she announces the resurrection and preachers seek to model their lives after she who announced the resurrection first. But lover um, and in the first century after the ascension of our lord she and martha and lazarus came to provence to the south of what is now france and saint mary magdalene lived the life of a hermitess right so you can go to a place called la saint bum and there is this kind of peculiar rocky rocky outcropping and i was talking to a frenchman there and he said uh it's widely held that that, that France is the most beautiful country in the world. I was like, widely? By whom? The French? Okay, keep going. He's like, and that Provence is the most beautiful region of France, and that La Saint-Bôme is the most beautiful hilltop in all of France. So you are in the most beautiful of the most beautiful of the most beautiful. And I was like, proud to be an American. <laughs> Excellent. That's phenomenal. It must be a Southern thing. Uh, yeah, it's hard to say. Um, but, uh, so you can go to a grotto where she is uh, said to, live to, re- to have lived her life um, as a hermitess, and in there, um, St. Mary Magdalene's tibia is preserved and then you can go to this hilltop chapel where she went to pray and then across maybe like 15 miles down the road is the Basilica of St. Mary Magdalene in the town of Saint-Maximin and there they have uh, the relic of her cranium and they did whatever science dating science science was done nice. so there was science and the scientists did the science things right. and what happened was science and what they found was both of these relics are from a first century woman in the region of present day Palestine or Israel. So it's like, hey, we're not making stuff up. We're just communicating the riches of the faith. Mm. So I made a pilgrimage there with my sister and then a a friend, Teresa, which was awesome. And we venerated the relics in both sites, which I found very moving. Um, It was, yeah, and we were like very warmly hosted by the Dominican friars there, the province of Toulouse, who are awesome um, and who, who run the shrine there, the hostelry there. So yeah, I don't know, any other favorite relic pilgrimages? Well, I think you have to mention St. Peter because it's so extraordinary, his remains. And that sort of sets off the trajectory of this whole Catholic past and why we've been doing this because he, as the the greatest among the apostles, the vicar of Christ, the head of the church, uh, has a pride of place. So to think that his mortal remains would have been cared for and beloved since the time of his death is truly extraordinary. You know, just to offer something and nearly as old as St. Mary Magdalene there, because yeah. I don't know who was older, she or St. Peter. It's not, not quite clear. Not clear. Um, but 
but when you when you tour the 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 crypt when you tour when you tour down down under the excavations under St. Peter's Basilica you find a preponderance of evidence yeah. that this is really St. Peter that this was you know, again, a first-century Palestinian man, a first-century Palestinian person, um, whose whose remains have been treasured. You find graffiti mm-hmm. with arrows pointing to it, and I think one of the most remarkable things is the way the entire basilica was structured. That we had a clear idea of where the saint had been buried, and that throughout through the reconstructions of various constructions of the basilica, there his grave had been preserved and honored such that today. His remains lie directly under the high altar, directly under the center of the the keynote, directly under the central dome, directly under the cross Mm -hmm. in the world's largest Catholic church, which is extraordinary. Yeah, directly under the providential hand of God, which rests heavily on the city of Rome. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah, I I, I don't know that I did many pilgrimages. I'm like thinking like, I haven't done many pilgrimages for like 10 years. And I realized that that started around July of 2010. You know, it's like, what happened then? Oh, I entered the order of preachers. <laughs> and then I and then I lived in Cincinnati and then I lived in Washington DC and didn't do anything else. Yeah, I wasn't allowed to go anywhere for a decade. <laughs> yeah, that happens. Yeah. yeah, but since having been assigned in Switzerland, yeah, more opportunities have arisen. And, you know, both of us have been to the tomb of St. Dominic in Bologna, which is a wild thing. And to um, the Couvent de Jacobin, in Toulouse, where the where the relics of Saint Thomas Aquinas are preserved, uh, you know, for for mass in both places. I don't know if you stand out experiences in either of those sanctuaries. Um, I have yet to go to Toulouse. Oh no! Okay, okay. I'm brutal. I'm but, sorry. I, I think you did this just to shame me. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it, uh, of course, when I arrived at Saint Dominic's tomb, because you know I'm Irish and I keep all my emotions inside until they come out sideways, I knelt and wept. Yeah. Because it's so in, it's so incredible. Saint Dominic's tomb is done so very perfectly it's such a place of power of grandeur i was so proud to be a member of the order that we founded when i arrived there and when you walk behind the ark the tomb is called the ark and in fact the artist this work is so magnificent the artist became known for the artwork so he is called nicholas darka because the tomb is so magnificent magnificence you walk around the back side of the tomb and you can kneel of course as you know and there um we keep saint dominic's head Mm -hmm. in a gorgeous just absolutely stunning medieval reliquary it's it's incredible um so you you can be there face to face as it were uh, with our founder which is really an an incredible thing i think too when i when i was there i was reminded of a lot of stories of saint dominic that i hadn't thought about in a long time because you read a life of saint dominic you know in the novitiate and then when you make retreat and formation and stuff like that but sometimes you kind of like drift from the story of the founder because at least in my case i think about other people in the church's tradition more and saint dominic didn't write a lot of stuff so i'm not like let me read saint dominic's thank you note about spoons to the convent of madrid you know it's like that's not priority number one for me Uh, but when i was there it was like all of those stories were portrayed before me in living technicolor and one of them was when saint dominic i think was a student in palencia um, there was a famine and people in the town were starving and his one possession was his books with his marginal notes and his highlights and everything like which was his greatest richness or his greatest r- riches uh, as a student and as a preacher and he sold them so that he could use the money so as to feed those uh, with whom he was there in the city and when asked about this heroic act I mean some of you will be like, it's not that heroic. That's just normal. It's just like, like for a Dominican, it's heroic. All right, just give us some credit. Um, after performing the this heroic act. The most precious thing we have. <laughs> he said, 
Right, I prefer living skins to dead skins. Mm. And it was there, for me, like the Dominican tradition was very vibrant and was very lively because I was being received so warmly by the brethren mm. and like welcomed at table and engaged in conversation, albeit kind of like hilariously at times. Um, and then just to be there with St. Dominic, it was, like, it was like the dead skins of my memory, the dead skins of my, my past reading had become living skins among the brethren and then in contact with St. Dominic's tomb, which was, which was really beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, One quick sidebar before we transition. Yep. If you're looking for a good biography of St. Dominic, yes. well, a sort of spiritual story. As yes. Well. Might I suggest St. <laughs> Dominic's way of life? Who wrote that? And loving God. Funny you mention it. Who wrote that? I am a co-author <laughs> along with Father Jacob Bertrand of That's this incredible. here podcast. That book was published in 2021 was on it? the 800th anniversary of the death of St. Dominic. Okay. Yeah. Just to mention, you know, to bring something up that could be uh, among the panoply of things discussed in this Exactly, episode. of passing interest to the casual listener. And I will say that I read the book uh, as part of the editorial process, the review process. I didn't have much in the way of correction, just mostly in the way of affirmation and a co- like commendation. But I read it on a flight from Zurich to Newark which are two cities in the world. Both um, very important in the life of St. Dominic. Both very important in the life of St. Dominic. St. Dominic's pilgrimage to Newark just numbers among the most inspiring stories of his life. Um, and there was a man doing like strange calisthenics in the aisles so as to stave off the onset of deep vein thrombosis. And so like my experience of reading that book was like, what in the world is good? Never mind, just focus. But I started leaving you marginal notes in your book about this man's exercises so as to lighten the editorial process in some way for those who had to suffer it. So, um, yes, St. Dominic's way of life. Boom, chicka boom. All right, let's transition then into thinking about relics. Mm-hmm. Why is it that we have, cri- wait, like, let's interrogate our experience. Like, why are we animated by this particular type of pilgrimage? Why is it worthwhile to visit the tombs of the saints? What do their bodies continue to communicate to us in the 21st century? I think we start most obviously with the natural experience, right? When you when you have something precious, you pick it up from a trip, and you, <laughs> and, you and you keep it. You keep it with you, uh, showcase it, share it with a friend. <clears throat> our parents are very proud of us when we're born. Baby books are still a phenomenon that exists, and they even trim our hair and leave little bits of hair in baby books, or at least my mother did. Yeah, it's certainly for me. I don't think she ever really got around to filling out my sister's baby books. <laughs> That might, that might be that might be that might be false, but I know mine was certainly done and done beautifully. Thanks, mom. Yep. So the so we have this kind of natural dispensation to collect, to preserve, to share things. Um, I I had a a great experience as a Boy Scout going out west to Crazy Horse. Yep. Uh, to visit the monument of the great Indian chief couldn't be more different from Mount Rushmore. Yeah. And Mount Rushmore, the spirit ride, is very constricted. Don't touch anything. Leave everything alone. Stay on the path. Blah blah blah. At Crazy Horse. Uh, all the all the natives there want you to share in their culture. They encouraged us to take rocks home from the mountain. It was the most incredible thing. So when when there's that spirit of invitation, um, that playing out of that desire to preserve and remember, it feeds something. I think that is very natural, very co-natural to human beings. Yeah. So. Uh, random thought and then transition. Um, apropos of baby books and the preservation of hair clippings and stuff like that, sometimes my mom would get like really pumped about like, oh, you're so cute and so precious and everything you do is great and you're so holy. And I'd be like, you know, pump the brakes. Uh, but in order to like satirize this tendency of my mother's, at one point after a haircut, I just collected my hair and then I like clipped my nails and collected my nail clippings and I put it in a little bag and just labeled it relics and I gave it to her as a Christmas gift because I didn't really have the budget for Christmas gifts at this particular juncture in my life. Read post July 2010. Um, and then I thought my mom was gonna be like, you're gross, you know, like, and I'd be like, point proven, exactly, I am gross, you know, so easy. And instead, she opened it, she goes, 
thank you. And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> Well-intentioned, but disastrously unsuccessful. Um, all right, so thinking about relics, right? We we like to hold on to things. I mean, we're embodied creatures, so we engage in and through our bodies. You know, with other people in and through their bodies. If Father Bonaventure here, we'd talk about like phenomenology and grounding intersubjectivity, but he's not, so we won't. Um, so we like to have a hold on the other, and we like to, uh, yeah, like retain, as it were, a kind of possession of the other. Not in a creepy way or in a manipulative way, but just in a, like, yeah, the sense that the other is mine and I am the others. And I think that this, you know, this remains true of the saints, because the saints to us are like their friends, right? And so we have a claim on them, and they have a claim on us, albeit in a remote way, you know, that spans the centuries. But we like to, we like to be in touch with the things that they touch, the things that they use, the bodies in which their holiness, um, yeah, gave, gave testimony to the glory of God and the way in which it saves souls. Uh, so I think there's something about that. Yeah, like you said, it's just simple, it's natural, it's beautiful. Um, so then, okay, maybe thinking then about the fact, all right, it's dead. And that, that, that fact is, it is apparent to us, right? It is undeniably so. And in light of, you know, Protestant critiques, it's like, hey, why, why are we paying so much attention to the dead thing? Maybe, I don't know if you have particular thoughts on that or ways in which we can better appreciate the lasting significance of the body in the Christian tradition. Right. Well, I can further problematize it, actually. Yes, because, please do. Uh, because as you mentioned, the lasting <clears throat> significance of the Christian tradition, on the one hand, the homage that we pay to relics, the kind of veneration we offer them, um, which is different, of course, than the, than the tribute we pay to Almighty God, which is directly worship. Mm -hmm. um, the, uh, the the veneration that the, the our understanding of, of relics could could seem suspicious in light of what we hold about the burial of the body um, that the body for Catholics is a sacred thing um, we're not to for example cremate ourselves and spread our ashes uh, mm -hmm. dump them in rivers uh, spread them around territory that's a big no-no for us we preserve the body we keep it whole and intact even until very recently cremation wasn't an unnormal part of uh, the Christian uh, experience of of, um, of burial. So so we've got we've got I think a kind of tension here, right? Because we're we're on the one hand saying nope, the body has to be kept intact and preserved and honored, and now you're saying that you're going to go in there and trim parts of it, and separate them and spread them out and hope they do magic things for you. Yeah, no, that's a great point, and I think maybe one of the principles that helps us to distinguish between those two things is this idea of sanctity, mm. right? So holiness is super important and the fact that hom holiness permeates even the body of a person, right? It's not like you said, like it doesn't become a talisman or a magical object which is prized of miracle working abilities just by mere matter of the fact that like it's a foot from this rabbit or it's like a finger from this saint or it's, a, you know, it's not in the same category. But there is a sense in which holiness changes a body and especially in the medieval church when it was publicly acclaimed that a person was holy, you went straight into the process of dividing up the riches, right? And then those things were placed in the convents of the religious order to which the person pertained, or they were placed in the churches in which, you know, public devotion was dedicated to this individual. And there was a sense that, like, we as a Christian community need to retain the memory of the holiness of this individual because the holiness of this individual referred us to the holiness of God, by which or from which we are all shaped and sanctified. So I remember, like, the evil one telling St. John Vianney, if there were but three priests like you in the world, my kingdom would fall, mm. right? So it's like, and, and you know, you talked about the incorrupt heart of St. John Vianney. It refers us to the fragility of the evil one's hold and the strength of God's hold on the material creation. And so when we venerate these relics, we're, we're trying ultimately to refer our gaze to God, to refer our heart's devotion to God, who pours out graces upon the earth in such a bewildering way that he can actually trans, you know, like transfigure the very, 
you know, heart of the Christian and make it such that it's it's permanently referred to him. So I don't know. That's that's the beginning, I think, yeah, of an answer. Yeah, that's the meta principle. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I think I, the, the practical the practical <clears throat> thing, right, is that there's a difference between keeping grandma on the bottom of a closet and, and putting a saint's relics available for veneration, where they still hold a prize, you know, um, pride of place, where they're still honored, where they're still prized, where they're where they're where they're venerated devoutly. That's different than you know passing by and sort of you know sort of waving to her down there uh, as you move from room to room about your daily life. So so I think we can distinguish. Um, between those two postures towards the body. Yeah, yeah. And there's also a sense too with the Christian saint that our lives are not our own. Okay, so while the Lord does place our life in our hands and he says, exercise your freedom and make something beautiful of it, which is cool and an awesome prospect. It's also true that we're part of a mystical body, mm. right? So we're head and members, the one worshiping Christ, and that there's something like organic about our relation to the other members of the body and that our sanctity isn't just for us. It's not like, accumulating grace points so that I can be exalted to this level. And then when you're playing Holiness, the video game, it's like everyone will aspire to be like Father Patrick, you know, at level 10 who wields the sword of the spirit. It's like, no, 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 that's not the point. The point is that our holiness, while ultimately a gift from God that transforms our interior life, redounds to the glory of all those with whom we come in contact. And that remains true unto ages of ages because it's the church, right? It's not just the church militant or just the church suffering or just the church triumphant. It's the church. And we remain in bonds of communion with all the members of that church such that we can ask them to pray for us, right? Or name our children after those saints so that they can take on something of their same spiritual character. Or that we can, you know, venerate their relics as a recognition that the holiness of God changed this member of the body and that my referring to that, my like recollecting that, some way or in some way has an ongoing role to play in my own sanctification, which I think is yeah, it's awesome. It's just like, it, it reminds us of a reality that's beyond the mere material conditions of the day-to-day. -day. I had a really powerful experience of that at World Youth Day. Yeah. Because we collected very assiduously several of the patron saints of Krakow, men and women whose lives were were really were really formed by that great city. It, just an incredible thing. So we so we put these relics available um, for veneration for young people, and not everyone thought this was a good idea. Um, and this was at the Mercy Center, which was hosted by the Knights of Columbus. Um, not everyone thought this was a good idea. They were concerned. They they wondered would would young people even care, my friend. It was the most <laughs> remarkable sight because young people stood waiting for hours wow. to venerate these relics. And uh, you know, as we as we talked about how we would we would display them, uh, you know, there was a lot of discussion about securing them. Would people know how to interact with them? It was the most moving sight to see again these young men and women moving um, from saint to saint, very gently, uh, very gently kissing the 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 monstrances, the little containers in which the relics were displayed, um, touching rosaries or other holy cards to the relics. It, it was very, very, very moving. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so yeah. I think there's this sense of, uh, with, without even you know, having known the saint, of course, because many of these saints were long dead, but, but young people were drawn to them and knew that there was a closeness and knew that these, these great men and women belonged to them in, a me in an immediate and intuitive way. Yeah. It's, it's funny. You just reminded me of something that I had forgotten, and I've like forgotten it for many years, but I realized that it's part of my own Dominican life and Dominican vocation. When we first came to Washington, D.C., we would go over to St. Dominic's from time to time, which is the community on the south side of town where a lot of older men of the province live at the end of their lives because there was facilities there to take care of them. And there was a priest who was dying right when we arrived, Father Jack McMahon. Oh, yes. And um, I, you know, like I didn't know how to 
live slash talk to other human beings. I still don't know either how to live or talk to other human beings. Um, but I was like, I want to help this man. Also, I'm a pimple face punk kid, and what do I have to give? But I had a third class relic of St. Thomas Aquinas in my pocket. And I was like, you know, because he was like, he was already at the point where he was like agonal breathing, like he was at the end. Mm-hmm. And I said, like, Father McMahon, would you like um, this relic of St. Thomas Aquinas? And he looked up and he said, I've already got a first class relic. <laughs> I'll teach you. I was like, well, you know, shame on me. You know, I just touched something to his tomb. Dumb. Mm -hmm. Um, But when he passed, the prior of the community, Father uh, Joseph Berenger, came up to me at his wake and handed me a first-class relic of St. Antoninus of Florence, Mm. which he had found in his room. And he said he wanted you to have this. And, you know, like there had been a member of our province with that name who, um, you know, like who was no longer in our life in the same way that he was before. And I was kind of like still broken up over that. And so I had the saintly intercessor of the patron of this person. And it was just really moving for me, uh, which I kept and I ultimately gave to that individual. Um, but like the the communion that this man, you know, would care for me in that way was cool. And also when he died, I, I, I took his summa. And that's the summa that I read all throughout formation. And only when it came to pieces at every joint did I replace it with another one. So it's like, nice. yeah, there was something about the spiritual communion of the order, you know, of our friendships, of our fraternity that was very much impressed upon me at that early stage. You know, so it's like you recognize it when you see it. You know, you don't have to tell people how to venerate relic. I mean, they might kiss it in a weird way and not know what to do with this purificator. Do I like, you know, dab the shaving cream at the corners <laughs> of my head? You know, like, what do I do with this? Um, but that we know, you know, like when the other is ours and we are the others. And I think that's just a kind of simple affirmation of that. But yeah, we're coming kind of the end of the episode. And I don't know if there are final thoughts or final questions that you want to raise apropos of relics, things that, that, that merit consideration or just merit sharing with the audience. Yeah, I think ultimately relics are, of course, an opportunity for us to think more deeply about the lives of, of holiness that the saints lived, right? To think how, how, we, how we belong in this great communion, to be inspired by them. So relics don't, uh, don't um, our experience of relics doesn't end in just getting to the relic, right? The point of going on pilgrimage is to be strengthened for the purpose of the rest of the journey on life, right? Yeah, yeah. So you go to the saint so that you can know the saint and so that the saint will continue to aid you. So I think that would be my, my word of encouragement, right, is to, to pursue pilgrimages, especially pilgrimages to holy places where you can visit the tombs of the saints, where you can venerate relics. Absolutely, yes. But that can't be the end of it, right? The end of that has to be incorporating uh, the intercession and the wisdom of these holy men and women into our own lives that we might be furthering uh, and grow in our own pursuit of holiness. Yeah, I think that's that's a good kind of summary thought because... You know, some of the critiques that are leveled against the use of relics or the veneration of relics is that it seems, like we said, magical, but like extrinsic, right? Mm. It doesn't seem to kind of strike to the heart of our Christian lives. And so, like you said, you know, this is a sacramental, as it were, right? So it's, it's related to the sacramental order. It's of a secondary importance, but it ultimately refers us back to what is of primary importance, right? So, so we look to the saints as examples of holiness. We ask their intercession insofar as they remain effective aids in the spiritual life, you know, beyond the grave. Um, but that it's for our, like you said, ongoing pilgrimage towards the heavenly Jerusalem. And that if we have those who have gone before us, why not avail ourselves of their assistance? And if this relic, you know, which obviously it was, you know, like the, the holiness that this person managed to acquire over the course of his or her life radiated through this thing. Like, why not avail ourselves of it? You know, just because it's maybe a little bit weird. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Okay. Maybe final thought, final encouragement for the Christians who are considering the use of relics and how best to interact with them. 
treasure them. There you go. Mm. Treasure them. Treasure them indeed. And uh, if you have a third-class relic of St. Thomas Aquinas that you offer to a dying brother, don't be overly disappointed when you are rebuffed because it might turn into a first-class relic of St. Antoninus of Florence. <laughs> Uh, all right, folks. So thanks so much for listening to this episode of Godsplaining. Uh, please follow us on Facebook, on Twitter, and Instagram. Like the episode. If you would, subscribe on YouTube or on your podcast app and leave a five-star review insofar as that helps to get the word out. And uh, please, God, people will be affected by the word shared, the preaching here. Um, so if you'd like to donate to the podcast through Patreon, you can follow the link in the show notes or episode description. And in the same aforementioned show notes and or episode description, you'll find links there to shop merchandise at godsplaining.org. And you'll find a link to get uh, updates on upcoming Godsplaining events. So retreats, pilgrimages, things as they become available. You can check those out. Pilgrimages, relics, boom, check it out. Um, so that's all from us. Uh, know that our prayers are for you. Please pray for us and we'll look forward to chatting with you next time on Godsplaining. <laughs>